Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Naughty Mermaid, written by George F. Wartz. Take one mermaid, one dismayed young man, an upper-class social set, then mix well for the frothiest classic since Topper. In the tradition of Thorne Smith's Topper and Ron Howard's Splash, comes this 1935 madcap romantic fantasy of an ordinary man whose life is turned upside down and backward when he rescues a charming but utterly uninhibited mermaid. From the leading romance magazine of its time, The Naughty Mermaid is available for the first time ever in audiobook form. In this George F. Wartz screwball classic, for those who like smooth romance with excitement lurking in every chapter, you will meet... Wellington Peel, who discovered that finding a mischievous female naked on a beach isn't as much fun as he thought, if she is a mermaid. Zixie, whose real name translated from myrrh, is girl with her eye to the wormhole of a conch shell, which means she is terribly curious. Patricia Trumbull, Wellington's fiancée, who loved only Wellington Peel and was certain he loved only her. But would she be as certain if she saw him in the embrace of a beautiful young woman dressed in the altogether? Aunt Hattie, a staid, upper-crust, and highly proper New England matron whose ideas of correct decorum were about to be outraged in ways she never dreamed of. Wilkins, Aunt Hattie's long-suffering butler whose dreary days were about to be lit by the sudden appearance of the most vivacious, charming young woman he had ever met. And Premier Gustanzo, the most powerful man in Europe, whose dignity and pride in his beard knew no equal until a certain mermaid took it into her head to pull it. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Naughty Mermaid. The Naughty Mermaid Written by George F. Wartz. Narrated by Victoria Kelly. Chapter 1 It was sunrise on Sea Closet Cove, and Wellington Peel was swimming out to the moaner and back to sharpen up an appetite for breakfast. Out to the moaner and back to the cabanas was a three-mile swim, with a stiff ebon tide to buck on the way in. Plenty of a workout. But Wellington Peel was young and healthy, fresh from sleep, and inspired by the magic of midsummer dawn. He relished the sting of the salt water against his cleaving body and the easy play of his well-trained muscles. He loved the rosy virgin air of the world, the pink-frosted whitecaps, the gilded waves creaming up on the beach, and he rejoiced in this sense of solitude, master of an awakening world. Off to Wellington Peel's left were the shark teeth, a row of black rocks embedded in moss and girt with seaweed, the sun glow on their ugly jagged points giving a shocking but delightful illusion of dripping blood. Submerged at high tide, the shark teeth, like the fangs of some submarine monster, were always ready to rend the bowels from any luckless vessel. On swam the swimmer, tingling and glowing with the very revel of life. Now he bestowed a cheerful thought on what he would have for breakfast. Grapefruit in a nest of crushed ice, bacon and eggs, a waffle drawn in maple syrup, 
Coffee, smoking hot, enriched with cream so thick it had to be broken up with a fork. Clawing along with his perfect four-beat crawl, he exhaled an underwater sigh of sheer delight. Life was good. Life was pretty handsome. Life was, in fact, a bowl of berries. At that moment, a pair of slim arms reached up out of the sea and twined themselves about Wellington Peel's neck and suddenly yanked him below the surface. There was no warning. He saw no one. He heard no cry for help. There was no sound upon the gently undulating sea but that of the moaner a mile away. As if they had been a cunning trap sprung there to await his coming, the arms simply reached up, enfolded his neck, and pulled him under. In that moment of horrifying surprise, Wellington Peel had time only to scrawl the one word, help, and to fill his lungs in a great sob of dismay. He tried to free himself. He struck out with his fists, kicked frantically with his legs, he writhed, wriggled, and twisted, all to no avail. He was pulled down and down into the green and awful depths until his ears popped and the air in his lungs began forcing itself from his nostrils against his wishes and in fine threads of bubbles. Chapter 2 Perhaps five fathoms down, his eyes opened. It was a woman, a girl. A beautiful young woman. Her face was a pale blur through the green water. Her fair hair floated about the pale, lovely face. Her eyes were large and sea-green, staring at him with an intense, childlike curiosity. Her rosy lips were parted. She was smiling. That was the first of Wellington Peel's submarine shocks. But it could not hold a candle to the next. He definitely saw a bubble come out of her mouth and float upward. She was breathing. She was breathing water. This shocking discovery set the young man to struggling even more violently. It was all clear now. He was in the arms of a ghost. He was in the clutches of some poor, miserable girl who had been swept off a ship and drowned at sea. She was a siren of the deep and she had taken up a posthumous career of dragging swimmers to their doom. And now the lovely pink-mouthed wraith was staring at him through the sunlit water with something akin to despair. He could have sworn there were tears in her eyes, although such a phenomenon was obviously impossible. Then the lovely mouth closed with an inaudible snap, a look of determination beset her slim and lovely face. Wellington Peel, at this point, lost what remnant of reason he had managed to retain. He went temporarily mad. He was drowning. Life, which he cherished so, was about to be snatched from him by a siren of the deep. There was thunder in his ears. In a moment, he must give up the air imprisoned in his burning lungs must gulp water, and die. The sea-green eyes were closer, studying him. Never in a face had he seen such woe. Then an amazing thing happened. The beautiful saltwater ghost gave a strange wriggle. Instantly, the two of them 
were being propelled at terrific speed toward the surface. With a splash, they broke the surface. Wellington Peel gulped and panted, pumping good fresh air into his lungs, while a pulse in his ears rivaled the drumming of a racehorse's hooves. The mooing of the moaner came cheerfully to him across the salty wastes. The slim arms were still enfolding his neck, but she was behind him. He twisted about in the water. There was no question about it. There were tears in her sea-green eyes. Damn it! she cried with bitterness. Why can't you breathe underwater? I wanted to talk things over with you in my grotto. In a new frenzy, Wellington Peel tried to free himself of that entangling alliance. Woe left her eyes. Her elfin face hardened. With deliberation, she punched him in the nose. Help! he yelled. She ducked him. With the greatest of ease, she held his head under water while he kicked and floundered. He swallowed salt water. He gagged. He choked. He strangled. When she let his head emerge, he coughed, gasped, and made awful rattling sounds in his throat. Don't do that again, she said sternly. He could not cry out now. His windpipe seemed to have collapsed. He was limp in those slim, strong arms. He was on his back. She was behind him and under him, supporting him. They began to move backwards through the water toward the cabanas. They were being propelled at tremendous speed. Somehow, the girl was doing this, propelling them through the water at speed boat clip with apparently no effort. If it hadn't been for the familiar placid mooing of the moaner, Wellington Peel would have sworn it was all a hideous nightmare. Reaching the shallow water, the amazing creature dragged him up onto the dry sand and stood with hands lightly on hips, gazing down at him, her sea-green eyes glowing, an expression of childlike eagerness animating her beautiful elfin face. Too spent to move, Wellington Peel stared up at her. He shivered. He gulped. He blinked. Great Scott! He gurgled. You're a mermaid. Her red lips parted. She was breathing through them now, softly panting. Yes, she said in her soft, strange voice. Wellington Peel had never met a mermaid before. The truth was, he was a skeptical young man and had never believed in mermaids. He thought mermaids were the stuff of silly old myths. But the rosy sunlight bathed a mermaid as innocent of clothing as a maple tree in January. Her slim, golden loveliness was, all of it, shamelessly and gloriously displayed. He looked hastily away. He looked hastily at the little waves creaming up on the beach. But he still saw the image of her, in the very foam, an Aphrodite thrillingly new to his experience. He had seen, in that one breathless optical gulp, the purest beauty. Her face was a dream of loveliness, and she was divinely formed. A true nymph with slender, long legs. Somewhere behind, a fish-like tail was attached. 
a beautiful slim appendage studded with tiny gem-like scales of rainbow coloring. There was a sprinkling of these scales about her hips, too, like sequins on a hip-clasping evening gown. They glittered and twinkled in the sunlight against the clear golden flesh of her. From rare shades of violet through dazzling emerald to the loveliest of kingfisher blue, all of the rest of her was golden, a satin gold. Chapter 3 This all this he saw in that one incredulous, embarrassed glimpse before looking away with blazing cheeks. But it was evident the mermaid shared none of Wellington Peel's embarrassment. She was staring at that bronzed, powerful young body, in its skimpy blue trunks, with the most avid curiosity. And she evidently misunderstood his embarrassment. Oh, she cried, you're angry. You're angry because I almost drowned you. But I was simply dying with curiosity. I was dying to talk to you. I forgot you couldn't breathe underwater. I'm not angry, Wellington Peel said. It was true. His angry resentment was forgotten. He was still blushing. He was giving a thought to what Patricia Trumbull would say if she saw him lolling on the beach beside a girl innocent of wearing apparel. But his amazement enabled him to dismiss what Patricia Trumbull might say, and his curiosity was again beginning to get the better of him. A mermaid! A mermaid with a genuine tail! An amphibious woman! A girl who lived and had her being in the depths of the sea! A girl who talked as other girls talked, but with a charming, a really enchanting accent, a most fascinating role to the R's. But a mermaid, a mermaid with a tail. He stole another glance, and there it was. That tail, slightly wriggling, betraying her excitement, shimmering with its little gem-like scales. She was lying face up, resting on her elbows, with her beautiful young legs stretched out before her, her head reclining on one shoulder, her great sea-green eyes, with their long, curving, dark lashes, gazing eagerly at him. I can't grasp it, he cried. I simply can't grasp it. You aren't a fish, except for that tail. That, the mermaid said, is beside the point. Am I judged by earthly standards, beautiful Mr. Peel? You are, the young man honestly answered. The most beautiful woman I have ever seen in my life. She had given her tail a little flick, which, he was to learn, was always an indication that she was pleased. Judged solely by my tail, she said naively, I'm considered the most beautiful mermaid in the North Atlantic. But am I beautiful by your standards, too? You are he repeated fervently. The most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. You are superb. You are incomparable. She gave her tail another demure flick, but her gaze remained dubious. Do you consider these girls I see on the beaches beautiful? Some of them, yes. I can't understand it, Mr. Peel. Why are they beautiful? 
they have no tails. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Naughty Mermaid. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.